everyone. Welcome to a new episode of the Hope and Hard Pills podcast, where we help provide practical insights for racial justice and social change. I'm Alicia T. Cross, and this week's interview is with Britt Hawthorne, who is an educator, starter of a school. There's like lots of cool things that she's doing. So yeah, how about we just get into the interview? Hi, Britt. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you? I am doing wonderful. I'm feeling I'm feeling on a high today. I can't wait to share about it. I know. You said you have some exciting news, so l- let me have it. Okay. So yesterday on Instagram, I officially posted that I am starting um, my own school. It's going to be an elementary, so first through sixth grade anti-biased, anti-racist school. I'm working with an organization called Wildflower Schools. I don't Have you heard about Wildflower at all? I have not. Okay. Well, I'm so glad I get to share about it. It's a pretty mm-hmm. small organization right now, um, but it's an ecosystem of Montessori schools and they're all micro schools. So it's kind of like an ode to the one room schoolhouse where mm-hmm. it blurs the lines between homeschooling and an institution of schools. Um, it's mm-hmm. two teachers that run the classroom and they also own the school. Um, and that's, oh, wow. yeah. And so it's really, it's, it's kind of like my dream come true. And um, right now we homeschool our youngest and mm. I'm a former public school teacher. And so I feel like this is just going to allow me um, to bring down my homeschooling background, my public school background, my teaching degree, my Montessori background, and of course, everything that my work is rooted in is anti-bias, anti-racist education for our learners. So yesterday, it was like I my heart was pumping when I uh-huh. put it out there, and then um, today it was like just divine that we're doing the podcast because I get to talk a little bit more about it for the first time um, oh with my you. God. Oh my gosh. That is so exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm like really nervous um, because I don't know what I don't know, you know, but uh-huh, um, uh-huh. that's, that's why I am going to be listening and learning and leaning on a whole bunch of incredible folks to help guide me and my future uh, co-owner together. Oh my gosh. That is so cool. I mean, yeah. not to mention just like when someone's like, so what do you do? You're like, oh, I, I run a school. <laughs> you know, it's, it's mine. It's yes, <laughs> it is. So how, how would you describe the work you've been doing up to now? So we can put this in context. Yeah. So the last few years, I'm um, an equity trainer, which mm-hmm. pretty much means that I work with classroom teachers. I work directly with classroom teachers so that they can make their classroom environments inclusive. When we think of anti-racist work, we're always thinking of outcomes. And in the educational setting, it is so um, based in measurement. It's so it's mm-hmm. you know it's a lot about accountability. It's a lot about data. And so there's mm-hmm. good and bad to that. You know, there's that conversation around achievement gap or opportunity gap. Um, but there's a lot of of data that we can gather to say, hey, our classrooms are not at all anti-racist, and we know that. We- by simply looking at the data. So I get mm-hmm. to work with classroom teachers all across the country, um, meeting them, chatting with them. We talk about the history of race and racism, um, specifically with the lens of education. 
Um, you know, we rethink Brown versus Board of Education. And then mm. we think about what implications does that have in 2019 and ways in which those sneaky, insidious ways um, that it has seeped into our teaching practice without us really bringing anything to consciousness and intentionally choosing how to treat our learners as equal human beings. So mm. that's pretty much what I have been doing the last few years. And you started, like you said, as a public school teacher. So how did that transition yeah. come about from you deciding to leave the classroom to do equity work? Yeah. So um, it's not a beautiful story of how I decided to leave. I was a public school teacher. I was a public Montessori school teacher. And honestly, we left as an act of resistance towards white supremacy. You know, there's just so many misunderstandings and, and myths in education and problematic ways that honestly we teach because, you know, I have a degree in elementary education. Mm-hmm. I also have two certifications in Montessori education. Mm-hmm. and no one is talking about this. No one is helping us as educators um, of how do we teach this in a developmentally appropriate way? How do we bring in anti-bias, anti-racism into our classrooms with three-year-olds, with six-year-olds, with nine-year-olds? And the thing about it is educators are hungry. Like We want this information. We want this knowledge. It's just so much work to seek it out and to find it. And also to, yeah. to beat off those myths of children are colorblind. You know, yeah. if, you, if, you, if you bring up race, then you're racist or, or you're creating a problem, you're creating divisiveness. So mm. there's so much work that we have to do around understanding even children's um, identity development, too. Right. So the myths you're talking about, are they around race specifically or are they about race and education together? What, what are the myths you're referring to? Yes. Well, I think... There's definitely a ton of myths in education that are always happening about how children learn, how children Uh learn how to read and all of that. But what I'm really specifically talking about is the myths around race and Mm -hmm. racism and around children's um, identity development. You know, a lot of times parents, educators will say, you know, when's an appropriate time to talk about children, talk with children about race? When do we bring it up? How do we bring it up? There's definitely this idea of innocence with children. Mm -hmm. And what I'm always discussing with parents, families, educators is like, look, the children that are three to six years old, all day Mm -hmm. long, all we ask them to do is to categorize things. And we know that that's really strong, healthy brain development is them categorizing, rhyming Mm -hmm. words. You know, we hand them a handful of um, odd objects and we ask them to sort it. We want them to sort things by color, by shape, that's all we're doing. And then we somehow think that when they see us, that we present as being translucent to them, mm. but with no color. You know, they are, they are seeing our skin color, our skin tone. Wow. Um, just as much as they see any other shade of color. Mm-hmm. Now, there's different ways, you know, a three to six-year-old child who's learning their colors. It doesn't make any sense to them to say that I'm Black. Because right. they're like, no. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they're the, like, I have crayons. Yes. And I've seen the black one. Yes. And you are not that. Exactly. <laughs> and they will look at you like, oh, I think you need a lesson on that. <laughs> <laughs> I had I, I had one little girl, she was four years old, and um there was two different teachers, and she called one teacher a black teacher, another teacher a brown teacher. Mm-hmm. And they both were black women. And I was so curious. And so I said, oh, 
you know, how did you know she was black? You know, and how did Mm. you know she was brown? And the girl looked at me with such spiciness and said, (laughs) her hair color. And I was like, oh, (laughs) I mean, the way that they will draw conclusions and that's what they're doing all the time. They're drawing conclusions. So when the little girl said that this teacher is black, Mm -hmm. did she mean that in a literal sense or was she referring to race at that moment? Yeah, no, she was referring to their hair color. One woman had black hair, the other woman had brown hair. And for her, that's a black woman and that's a brown woman. Got it. Okay. Sorry. No. (laughs) I mean, but like I, like you, was like, wait, how are you? How did you come up with that? And then after she said it, it was like, oh my gosh, that's so concrete. And it makes Mm. sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know? And so we do a lot of work with parents and educators, with families, um, talking about how do we affirm a child's identity? How do we get them to self-identify their skin tone first? And mm-hmm. doing activities like mixing paint to make their own shade, and then they can bottle it up in like a little three-ounce bottle of paint, and they can name it, and they can say that I'm the color of sand or toasted almond or whatever mm-hmm. whatever color they want, you know, feeling really, really affirmed and feeling good about who they are. Because yeah. we know, I mean, Andre, you know, this is the work you do with, with hope. We know that when we feel really good about mm. who we are, mm-hmm. we're able to see the good in another person. And then we're able to really fight unfairness. Yes, yes, yes. I have a question. Yeah. What do you think that children need to be taught about race at an early age? I, ha- I have a theory, but I want to hear what you think first. Mm. When you say early age, what age are you talking about? <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. Let's start. How about this? Let's start with an age seven years old. Is that, okay. is that early enough for you or do you want to go younger? <laughs> That's fine. Okay. Seven-year-olds, what I think children should be taught about race at an early age um, is that race is a social construct. It's completely made mm-hmm. up. Yes. And... It it was backed by pseudoscience. Mm -hmm. I think young learners are able to see the ways that we have used numbers and science to manipulate minds. And I think Mm -hmm. it's really important that young learners know that race is a social construct. Mm -hmm. There's no basis to race at Mm -hmm. all. However, Mm -hmm. when we're not critically thinking yeah. And we're not being what we would call um, like good learners, right? We're yeah. not like investigating our work, what we yeah. can start to believe. And I think yeah. that's really important. The younger that we can get children to understand that race is a social construct. And the reason why we talk about it is because there's some real consequences to having a racialized identity. And let me tell you, they can get that at seven years old because they have all experienced unfairness particularly around their age. They all know how it feels to be young and how to be treated. They all know how it feels to be um, a learner and Mm. someone talking at you or assuming that you don't know something or understand something. So they particularly really understand unfairness Mm. and and how that can work. 
Yeah, that's exactly along the lines of what I have been thinking. But because I'm not an educator, I totally doubt myself on this. But I have been thinking, like, how come no one told me at Mm -hmm. an early age that race was made up? Right. Mm. And how come this is something that most people don't know? Right. Mm -hmm. Like you have to take a sociology course in college or something like that uh, before you find this kind of information out for many people. And so I've always wondered, like, well, if we taught kids that race was a made up concept, but that people hurt each other because of it, then what kind of world would we have? You know, I wonder why we're not doing that. No, absolutely. And, and, you know, it's all about power structure. It's about power dynamics, right? It's Mm -hmm. maintaining a status quo. Um, I think that some of it goes along the lines of, of myths. We think that children somehow at age 18, like their eyes will change and now they'll have this consciousness of race. Mm-hmm. And so we, we don't want to engage in, but there's really a larger conversation. There's a systemic thing happening in education. You know, education is a multi-billion dollar industry and it is, oh. you know, funneled and fueled around misconceptions, around white supremacy, around patriarchy. We have an entire testing industry that tells us, you know, it's so interesting. They create the test to test our learners, to tell us how many learners are not, are quote unquote failing so that they Mm. can then sell us the intervention so that then we can also buy the test again. And we're on this, like we're in this hamster wheel Mm. and it's the same testing company that also certifies our teachers that maintain a power dynamic of. I know it's in the 80s, but I think it's like 88% of our teachers are white. Oh, wow. You know, and, and female on top of that. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a lot of it has to do with power dynamics. We know how closely related education and the prison system is, right? There's yeah. a direct school to prison pipeline. There's a funnel that's happening. And so it serves the interest of the dominant culture to continue mm-hmm. As status quo, you know, there's a anti-racist training um, called Crossroads out of Chicago, and they always they always end their training with educators at the end by saying, you know, the signs came down in 1954 when we desegregated the schools, but really little has happened to reconcile mm-hmm. our educational settings along the lines. We still have a narrow curriculum. Um, we still are not talking about race, racism, bias, um, any kind of social identities in school. We're still yeah. not teaching accurate and truthful histories. Mm-hmm. And it's all under this guise of children aren't ready. Right, right. But right. it's like you said, then you become an adult and then and you go into the workforce. And then when do you become ready? When does it happen? So what are some things that you wish that you saw more teachers doing in the classroom? I wish that more teachers definitely would use the anti-bias education framework Mm -hmm. in their classroom, get really familiar with it, read the book, anti-bias education for young children and ourselves. Mm. I also wish that more teachers would really take an honest look at representation in their classroom. Mm looking at the art supplies that are provided. If you have skin tone, um, crayons, markers, Play-Doh, paint, construction paper, looking at our books for social identities, 
analyzing every single material you have in your classroom and looking at, does, is this promoting tokenism? Is this promoting uh. um, stereotypes? Is this promoting a one-sided story? A big aha that I had was the little stories of resistance. Um, I have very, very little stories of resistance in my classroom. Um, I didn't talk about the everyday acts of resistance when there were, we had enslaved people who were mm-hmm. hiding their farm tools, who mm-hmm. were um, hurting themselves so they wouldn't go to work because they knew it was going to hurt um, mm-hmm. the bottom line. You know, I didn't tell yeah. those stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I had so much invisibility in my classroom around indigenous people, indigenous people's resistance um, yeah. then and now. So I want our educators to really, really critically look at the stories they are telling in their classroom and who they are centering. Mm. And I also want educators to start looking at systemic racism. They need Mm. to know how are children being enrolled in their school? Actually go through the admission process. Know where your school lines are drawn. Um, Why does your school population look that way? How is PTO either hoarding funding, you know, power hoarding, um, Mm -hmm. controlling money? How are you redistributing that? Um, And get involved with the school board. Go to the meetings and resist. And since your journey really began in your home, you know, and with, Mm -hmm. with your family, I wondered about what advice you might have for parents who also want to make sure that they are raising their kids with an awareness of anti-racism. Yes. For parents, the biggest piece of advice I can offer just from my own experience is modeling. Mm -hmm. Modeling when I reacted to an irrational thought. Modeling how to apologize and say, how can I make this better to my children and to, to other people? Mm-hmm. modeling how do I show up as a volunteer, not in a, in a saviorism way, but in a way of this is the least I can do because we are exploiting a community, causing this as a, as a dominant identity. Um, and also, you know, I, I have boys. So I, we have a lot of work, my husband and I, we have so much work in raising our, our boys to be womanist, to be feminist, um, calling them in. And because we have such a loving relationship and so much trust has already been built, I can really call them out. Wow. You know, and so knowing that, that calling your child out and my now seven years old, he just turned seven last week. He knows he'll tell you I'm a sexist. (laughs) <laughs> Our 12 year old will tell you, I'm sexist. Interesting. And, <laughs> and they know it. And we, and we talk about systems. We talk about power. We give them that language. And, and they're able to give us examples in ways that we've been conditioned to not even notice anymore. But they mm-hmm. still notice it. Wow. I love that you're highlighting that. So we talked about how the kids are ready. Like they already understand. But I wonder if we could get a little bit more granular on how to talk with children, young people about racism, injustice, whatever you want to call it. So I'll tell you a little piece of of research that we know at four years old, between four and five, there's a peak 
in children's expression of pre-prejudice. Mm. So, at, and we call, we call it pre-prejudice because they're young, but mm-hmm. that happens at four to five. And wow. so things like, you know, you can't be the princess, you're not blonde. Ooh. Or you can't be the doctor, you're a girl. Uh. Or did, did you forget to take a bath last night? Is that why your skin is dirty? Mm. These are very common, common phrases that young children will say. We hear them in the classroom mm-hmm. and parents hear them. Mm-hmm. And what will happen is oftentimes the way we address it is either through 100% avoidance, we yeah. pretend we didn't hear it. And when we avoid, our children can draw a conclusion that what I said was accurate. Mm-hmm. Or what we will say is we are all friends, be nice. Um, right. We don't talk like that. And children mm-hmm. then draw another conclusion that, yes, they are right. Mm-hmm. And those are things that we just don't say. Oh. So because, because a child knows, you know, if you're a four-year-old child, almost every time you do something that's incorrect, an adult will correct you. You put the shoes mm-hmm. on the wrong feet. An adult will say, let me help you. You know, let's switch your shoes. This will feel much better. If you say two plus two is seven, an adult will say, well, can you show me? You know, Mm -hmm. I think it's, I think it's four. So when we say, when, when young children are saying those things, it's our own adult, all of our own adult stuff that gets in the way Mm -hmm. of how to address it. Wow. And as educators, we usually think that a child gets it from home. And what the research tells us is they didn't. Most of the time, they drew a conclusion that was inaccurate and nobody corrected them. Wow. We just really suppressed it. Wow. So then as they become older, like around nine, no one's really saying it, but everyone's starting to feel the micro assaults that are happening in the classroom and to one another. Wow. So for parents and for families, what we can do early on is start questioning. When a child right. says something either out of curiosity, you know, why, why, um, why do some people live outside? Why do they live under the bridge? Or why don't, you know, why don't people have houses? Mm. We can start to respond with questions and we can also always blame the system. Mm. So when children start to say things that are inaccurate, you know, my oldest one time had said, he said something about women aren't rappers or there's no good women rappers, wow. you know? So he drew this conclusion. Mm-hmm. And so I can respond by saying, well, can you name some women rappers that you know? Mm. Mm-hmm. And he couldn't name any. Wow. So then I said, do you think that was an accurate conclusion? Or maybe you could say, do you know of any women rappers? Mm-hmm. When our children are saying things, we have to listen and believe to what they're saying and just know that they've drawn an inaccurate conclusion. They Mm -hmm. have ingested a stereotype or a bias. Right. And so we want to bring to consciousness that. So when a child becomes nine and they start to come up with even more inaccurate conclusions or they start to act in ways of um, like we'll call it relational aggression. You know, mm-hmm. saying that I'm not going to work with you or I'm not going to help you with our schoolwork. We'll right. see that their friendships start to become very um, segregated by racial groups. 
mm-hmm. then we can just start by, again, curiosity. I've noticed all of your friends are of the same racial group. Have you noticed that? Mm. And allow our children really start to draw some conclusions. Why do you think that is? Mm-hmm. That's probably the most powerful thing I can, I can offer parents and families is lean in with curiosity and lean in with questions. Um, and, and don't be afraid to get messy. Don't be afraid to say and look at yourself and say, I wonder if they've drawn a conclusion from me. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's really powerful. We look at ourselves. We think about who's our friends. Who right. comes into our house and has meals with us? Oftentimes, it's folks of the same racial group. And so then we can only expect that then from our children. Mm. You know, monkey see, monkey do. Right, right, right. A great way is through books. Oh, great. Parents and families, if you're unsure about how to hold a conversation on your own, find a book. There's a great book, Something Happened in Our Town a child's story about racial injustice. And so when things happen, um, there was maybe a shooting of an unarmed black man. Um, Mm -hmm. Something has happened, used books. Like that's a great vehicle. Literacy is something that you can go back to um, and you can rely on. This book in particular is wonderful in order to host the conversation. And it comes from the perspective of a black child and a white child. And they're both, their families are both responding to something that happened in their town. And so books are a great vehicle just to start reading and and bringing to consciousness. There's so many great books that are affirming identities. And that's something else I would also talk about is that children of color and, and, and people who have social identities that have been pushed to the margins, mm. there's so many incredible books that affirm who we are that talk about yeah. how we come from a place of power before introducing our stories of oppression. And yeah. so also making sure you're, you're, you're having a heavy emphasis on those books that talk about how we like our hair. And there's a great barbershop book called Crown, um, mm-hmm. an ode to a barbershop that just talk about our everyday beauty, our joy, our glorious moments, our neighborhoods and our communities. And then, and then making sure that when you talk about the stories of oppression, that you're handling it with care. Yeah, that's so important. Okay, so I'm wondering, and I asked this of all, I want to say all, but I think I for, I've forgotten a couple of times, but I try to ask all my guests. <laughs> um, what keeps you hopeful as you do this work? What keeps you going? My children keep me hopeful. I think every educator has just an immense amount of hope. It's Mm -hmm. it's why we became educators. It is truly us crafting and creating the world that we want to see. And I really do that through both of my children. I have had so many beautiful aha moments through them. Um, And I see, especially through our youngest, what can be when you affirm a child and Mm. you let them know that they are perfect in every single way. And it is the systems that need to be fixed and not the child. Wow. Well, Britt, I'm so appreciative that you came on the show. Thank you for this wonderful conversation. I can't wait for 
everyone to hear it. Yes, I am so honored and grateful. I am also just still taken back that you asked me. So thank you so much, Andre. I've been following you now for quite some time, and I'm a huge supporter and fan of your work. So thank you. No, it doesn't have to be. Doesn't have to be this way. Doesn't have to be. No, it doesn't have to be this way. Oh my gosh, like it, that was just such a rich conversation that Dre and Britt were able to have. Like my first encounter with race, I might have explained or shared this on the podcast before, happened when I was in kindergarten. So I was in kindergarten at an evangelical middle school um, in New York City, incredibly diverse place, right? And I remember like my best friend being taken out of class because her parent didn't want her playing alongside a little Black girl. That was, like, really my first encounter with race. And I remember very pretty clearly, I was five, and, like, I remember um, just being really sad that my friend wasn't there anymore and having to have it explained to me that my friend wasn't there anymore because we were different, and instead of that difference being celebrated, that difference was enough for her parent to take her away because he he didn't want her to be in contact with me. Here I am being told that Jesus loves us all, and yet this parent didn't love me even though they were professing this faith. Like it's it was like one of also one of those places I think where I first encountered like you know, that there can be incongruence in people, like, who say a certain thing, not only just generally, but also religiously, and, like, and not be able to back that up in their actions. It was one of the the first times, I think, I, that, that incongruence came up for me in the world. And, like, the situation was actually interesting. And so none of the people, I think, involved actually were white. I don't think, you know, folks always recognize that when we talk about these conversations about race, we can't be so worried about what happens, you know, in the name of white supremacy that we forget about, like, the kind of the other types of racial bias and and racism that exist. And I know that there are some people who go back and forth about, like, whether or not it's racism if it happens between people of color because of how power plays into racism. And that that's kind of getting into weeds around, like, language stuff. But, like, we can speak about racial bigotry. Like, even if you want to, like, kind of parse your words, racial bigotry and racial bias are things that exist, regardless of people's background and the power and influence that they wield within a society. There's all these ways that, like, we've codified, like, racism and other forms of bias. We just, like, use, we use different types of words. So, like, no one's going to, like... I think the next part of like what goes into the, the upholding of the myth is that if you're not using like overly bigoted, like blatantly like, you know, prejudiced language that like is like a racial slur or something like that, that like bias still isn't there. I think that that's actually a pretty huge myth and one that is, you know, sometimes like supported by schools, right? I think that like I would have love to know more about like our histories right like not just like the figures who like white teachers bring out on on black history month right like so many of us and i'm not gonna say all of us because some people's education or formation didn't even have this but so many of us learned about dr king and about harriet tubman and about sojourner truth and these are all people who are iconic and like seriously like they're 
incredible humans who did incredible things. But there's so much I'm realizing that I don't know about Blackness and Black histories and the things that we have overcome and pushed through. And I wish that instead of having God being able to speak like ad nauseum about American history, right? And like in the mythology that's like present there. Um, like I wish I would have known something like as a kid, like Thomas Jefferson had slaves and, you know, and not only did he have slaves, like actually, you know, was very abusive and like sexually assaulted one slave in particular for like, I just, I wish I would have known things like that where, you know, so I didn't have to deal with like kind of the crash of the founding fathers, right? Like people who were put on pedestals, like white Americans who were put on pedestals, just seeing like how deplorably like they treated us. Like, I wish I would have known the truth. (laughs) Um, I mean, there are ways that I'm still grappling with this now, like as an adult, like finding out things. And it's just like, you got to be kidding me. Like, so I'm in this class on decolonization right now. And there are philosophers who I've been taught, like, if their teaching hasn't influenced things like religion or, you know, or or been in, like, theological thought, right, and, like, been present in our churches in some capacity, even if they go unnamed, they've also been highly influential in places like education, which is a part of, like, my background, or social work, or psychology, or whatever. And, like, I had, like, a, like, a, a moment like earlier this term. So like, as y'all know, listeners, like I'm back in school, but I had a moment like where I just like, just couldn't stop crying because like one thinker in particular was just so notably racist for his time to the point where historians speak about like his notable anti-Blackness because it was just so unique, even in a world that was like, seriously in the throes of enslavement, his anti-Blackness kind of took the cake for them. And to see how this person's, like, work influences so many things in the world, like, I just sat and cried because I felt betrayed. So it wasn't even, it's not even just, like, things that, like, I wish I would have known as a child. There are things that I wish that I would have been taught as an adult so I didn't hold to people as maybe tightly as I have. Or I didn't uphold their work in a certain way without nuancing it. And I think that that's, like, the importance of, like, the work that Brit is doing because, I mean, there's a lot of things to resent. <laughs> if we're honest, like the world just isn't kind to us because of the identities that we hold as Black folks, as women. I mean, and as we continue to like, kind of parse out like other parts of our identity, like there are other ways that the world can be unkind. But like telling the truth about where we've been and where we are, I think could make a real difference in the lives of children as they grow into like themselves and in, in reflecting on my own like experiences like within the educational world. So for those of y'all who don't know, um, in my former life, I was an educational advocate um, working in New York with schools specifically supporting Black and Brown youth and Black and Brown young men. But like one thing in particular that pops out to me was um, working in um, one of the top tier schools in New York. Um, it's one of those schools that you would have to test into And I remember that there were resources that were disproportionately given to students and it was incredibly raced. And sometimes it was, you know, I mean, it was really educators of all backgrounds, like perpetuating like 
you know, bias against these kids in different ways. Sometimes it was anti-Black bias, but it was like, it was my Black and my Latinx students, like, who were dealing with it the worst, to be honest with you. I remember, like, kind of just paying attention to, like, when opportunities would come forward, right, for, like, scholarships. There were scholarship meetings that were held for, like, white and Asian kids in that school. And even though the opportunities would be there for Black and Hispanic students, they wouldn't be told about this. They wouldn't have the representatives who work with those populations come in and address those kids. And I remember having to like confront the counseling staff um, and specifically the college counselors about this. I was like, hey, so here's the thing I've noticed. I'm here most days and I'm seeing all these flyers, advertisements, like here in PSAs for this. Are you making this available to other students of color beyond like the Asian population here? And, you know, it just seems like I'm like, I'm just noticing this a trend and being hit with some resistance, like these educators, whether they were white or people of color, they were not being supportive of of people in the school because like, oh, well, like our black and Hispanic students don't do as well. It's like, what, what, like, what are you doing here? Like what's happening here where you're not giving them equal access to opportunity or or supports, or, you know, they're being, you know, suspended or disciplined at higher rates than other kids. I mean, like, there are so many, in like, in that context in particular, there were so many interventions I would have to do for, like, my kids. Like, to the point where, like, there were some kids who, like, even with this being a top-tier school, one of the top schools in the country, you know, if we're going, like, on those, like, kind of, like, national, like, uh, what did they do? Like, the national ranking systems. One of the top two schools in the country. And I had kids who weren't being counseled through the college process. Or if they were being counseled outside of me providing the support to the organization I was working with, they were being told some really, really terrible things. Like, you know, you had people who were setting them up to take out, like, hundreds of thousands of dollars of loans for their undergraduate degree. And it was only the presence of this org that I was working with, which was like a civil rights org that had an education arm, that we were able to let these kids see, hey, you have other options than what these people were telling you. But I like, I just think about like, if not for that intervention being put in place, because they saw, and like they had an assistant principal at the time who's going on to be a principal in another space, like she saw that there was, it's just something went right in the water. <laughs> something was amiss. And because of that, she wanted to throw more support behind, like, you know, Black and Hispanic students. If she hadn't done that, these kids would have continuously been, like, just run over and not given supports and, like, had lower graduation rates and had, you know, higher suspension rates. But it, it took somebody being sensitive and, and wanting a more equitable environment for that to come into play for these kids. And they're, they're doing it. Like, kids who, kids who get this, they're doing it. Like one of the things that I love, so I have a friend back in Chicago and her daughters are phenomenal. They are part of like the student organizing collective that they got involved in in junior high, but they were seeing like the racial disparities like in the school, seeing the way that history was taught that like minimized or completely erased like the violences that they had experienced as, you know, as Mexican-American women. And they went and like got up with other kids and their mom's an organizer and they started like holding meetings and then started doing things like protests in the school and doing sit-ins and like calling attention like to the need for systemic change within their school system 
And it makes me so proud of like their mom, but also of them for, I'm, I'm proud of their mom for like cultivating these things in them. And I'm proud of them for like pushing this forward. Like there are things that are changing in their school system because they're like, we're not taking this. Like, you're not going to teach us these false histories. You're not going to continue to give us these myths. You're not going to, you know, minimize our concern and like treat us differently than our peers because of this social, like of, of this construct that is race. You're, we're not taking this anymore. And I think that that's a thing that gives me incredible hope because they're so young. Like they literally were doing this, like coming out of elementary school in junior high. And it's just like continued on and gotten more complex and more kids are joining and, and raising their voice in concert with theirs. And I think that like, you know, for the all the hard pills that we're talking about, like the discrimination that exists and it's present in our systems. I think that that's the thing that I hold and cling hope to is that the kids are all right. Like, they've got this. Like, they know what racism looks like. They know what sexism looks like. They know what heterosexism looks like and, like, and what it means for people to be discriminated against because of them being gender expansive and, like, having gender diversity in their classrooms. And they're willing to say and do something about it. But just kind of, like, Britt pointed to us, it wasn't the kids before. It's the adults that have to do their work. And so I'm wondering what type of work people are willing to commit to. Hey, everyone. As you know, every week we have a list of questions for reflection. Um, and here is this episode. What myths were you taught about racism and other forms of prejudice in your education? When and how did those myths get disrupted? What were you taught about bias and racism in your schools? Did you ever receive any education around anti-bias or anti-racism? What do you wish you would have learned about these things throughout your education? How have you experienced bias or racism in your educational formation? How have you witnessed discrimination impacting others? What could an inclusive and equitable classroom look like? What might complicate educational spaces from being free of bias and racism? What do you think kids should be taught about race and bias? And listeners and supporters, thank you. If you're a part of like our Patreon support system, thanks a lot. Like it's your donations that help this podcast keep running and help us keep doing what we're doing. If you want to join that network of support, please stay tuned after um, this part of the episode ends to hear from our producer, Ross Montgomery. He'll plug you in and help you get involved. Thanks so much for your time. We look forward to talking more, doing this more soon. Bye, y'all. Thank you for listening today. If you like what you heard and you haven't already, please subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. Leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts also helps us get into more ears and minds. This podcast is made possible by our fantastic patrons. Thank you for being a part of our work at Hope and Hard Pills. As usual, you'll get the uncut extended version of this episode on Patreon. If you want to join in on the work on our Patreon community, just look us up at patreon.com slash Andre Henry. 
To go deeper, get subscribed to our email newsletter. Head over to AndreRHenry.com and click Join the Movement, where you'll get practical insight on anti-racism and social change every week. And you'll never miss a new article, song, or podcast episode. You can also follow Andre Henry on Facebook and Instagram at TheAndreHenry. Connect with Alicia on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alicia T. Crosby and her website, AliciaTCrosby.com. That's all for this episode of the Hope and Hard Pills podcast. See you next time. Peace. Peace.